So we are continuing our series, our hop, skip, and a jump through the book of Revelation this semester. And we are in Revelation chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to open it. But um, if not, you can look along in your handout there. But so we began last week in Revelation chapter 4, the visions and the images that we most associate with this book. Uh, they started last week. Um, and one thing that we've kind of re- tried to remind ourselves every week is that this book, this letter, was written by a real person, John, written to real people in real churches, in real places, living real lives with real problems and real struggles and real questions about what was going on in their lives. And this book, given by Jesus to John to give the churches fully intended to bring comfort and encouragement to the people that heard it or read it. It was not in any way intended to bring fear or anxiety. That is not the intention of this book. The intention of Revelation, play on words here, is to reveal, not conceal. Okay? And we've subtitle of our series is when uh, heaven and earth collide. Heaven and earth collide for us. And we began to see this really starkly for John and for ourselves last week. Heaven and earth collide when we are given new vision, when we are given new eyes, namely spiritual eyes. This book, I'm going to keep saying it, and we're really going to start unpacking the images in the following weeks now. This book is not about what happens in the future. This book is not about mainly what happens in the future. It's not about knowing the future. It's about knowing the now in a deeper and more ultimate way. Because what what Jesus wants us to see is that this, this life, this world is not all that there is. Right? question to think about as we, we launch into this, what, what he sees here in Revelation 5, uh, Revelation 5. Why do you think that there has been a resurgence of the superhero movie over the last 10, 15 years? As much as Hollywood, I don't know if you follow this or know this at all, because you kids watch everything on your computers, uh, the box office is not doing so well. It's not trending so well over the last few years. But there is one well that has not run dry, and that is the superhero movie. We will pay money to go see those movies every time, right? And we don't have time to like go into that like a deep discussion, but here's what I think. I think we love superhero movies because there's something about a superhero movie that taps into something that we all want to believe, that what is wrong in this world will not win. That we all have ingrained in us, whether we've recognized it or not, this desire to know that there is someone or something out there who will make things right. Whether we really believe that's realistic or not, we at least long for it to be true. We're drawn into it because we want it to be true of our lives. Revelation 4 and 5, two chapters in your Bible, but they're actually the same vision. John is still in the same place. He's still seeing the same thing. But for all the glory and the beauty and the splendor and the majesty that he could not get his eyes off of last week, tonight there's crisis. There's crisis and John doesn't know what to do. So let's read here. Let me pray and then let's read here Revelation chapter 5 together. 
Father, we come to you and we open your word. And as we ask every week, by your spirit, would you speak to us? Would you open these words to us? Would they be words of life? Not words of mere knowledge. Not words of confusion. But words of life and truth. As you have promised that they would be. We pray that you would do that and we pray in your son's name. Amen. Read with me here, Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who is seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. This is God's word for us tonight. I want to see three things with you. First, I want to see what is the crisis, then what is the resolution, and then finally, what's the result? First, the crisis. What is the crisis? Why is John weeping? Again, chapters 4 and 5, they're the same vision. John has been taken up through the door, you remember, and he's in the throne room of heaven itself. Whereas chapter 4, what we saw last week, chapter 4, you can think of it this way, kind of sets the stage for us. We see everything that is there. We see that at the center of reality itself is a throne, but it's not an empty throne. There's one who sits on the throne. And around the one who sits on the throne, everything that exists bows down and casts its crowns and worships that one who sits on the throne. But then the setting of the stage in chapter 4 gives way in chapter 5. To the story. 
to the drama, to what is happening in history, in life, for us, for you, for me, for everyone who has ever lived. This is what the story is about. I told you Revelation 4 would be the launching point for the rest of the book. Chapter 5 is the story around which the whole book centers. This is the center of the center of Revelation, and the whole story of the book will hinge here tonight in what we see. So look at there what we see, what he begins to see. He sees now the same one seated on the throne, but now he sees a scroll in his hand. And one interesting note that we see there is that untypically, atypically, uh, this scroll has writing on both the outside and the inside of it. Uh, You usually did not do that. But what this kind of clues us into is that all this information needed to be in one place. Usually, uh, I don't know if you know this or care, but something like second, first and second Kings or first and second Samuel, those weren't actually two books. The author got to the end of the scroll and had to start a new scroll. And it becomes what we know as first and second Kings or something like that. But here, all this information, it doesn't all fit on the front of the scroll. It's going to be written on the front and the back. So what we're clued into is that what is contained in the scroll all needs to be, is all that needs to be said on the matter. What is the matter? We'll get into that in a moment. But everything that we need to know is contained here. Scrolls were typically sealed with wax seals, right? To keep them from unrolling. The more seals that you had, the more important a document would be. This one has seven seals. We've already seen that the number seven is symbolic of divine completion, right? So God's scroll has seven seals. This scroll we are clued into is of ultimate importance. There is nothing more important in this moment than this scroll. That is what John understands. And so now we begin to understand why John weeps. Because if this scroll is of utmost importance and there's one with a loud voice screaming to the cosmos, is there anyone worthy? And there's no one found worthy. And John begins to weep. And see, here's the thing. John's not just curious. He doesn't just want to know what's in there. He knows that what is in this scroll is of ultimate importance. We need it. And if there's no one worthy to open it, we will not get it. We're also clued in, again, say it every week, Revelation is full of images. But what kind of images are they? Bible images. John is not the first one to see a scroll in heaven. Ezekiel sees the same thing in Ezekiel 2. Daniel sees it in Daniel 2. And we know from there that what this scroll represents is the perfect and complete will and purposes of God Himself. It is the perfect and complete will and purposes of God for the world, for you, for me, and for the entirety of world history. More specifically, it's His plan to judge the world. Now, we hear the word judge, we automatically go negative like casting people into hell. To judge the world, to weigh it, to find whether we are righteous or not. So that's why we take it negative because we know we're not. Righteous, But his plan to judge the world and to then bring about justice in the world. What does that mean? That means that at the end of all time, as the Bible talks about over and over again, God will make every single wrong right. That is his plan for all of history, for all of the cosmos. And so you see why John begins to weep. 
Because if there is no one worthy to open this scroll, then every wrong will not be made right. If there's no one worthy to open this scroll, then what that means is that this world, as you and I know it, as you and I live in it, is all there is. Show me one person who finds comfort in that. You see now why he begins to weep. Because if this world, as you and I know it, is all there is, we know that we have a crisis of cosmic proportions. If there is no purpose, if there is no end goal to history, then history, past, present, and future, is meaningless. We're going nowhere. Why even try? Why even learn it? If there is no world where every wrong is made right, where every scar is healed, where every pain is soothed, then we know all too well we are in crisis. Because what that means is that this is all that there is. That's it. That is a crisis. If this world is all that there is, that's a crisis. But here's something that encourages me. And I mean this seriously. Um, Your generation gets this. I've said it before. Your generation, if you didn't know this, y'all are social justice warriors. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to cure hunger and thirst and poverty everywhere as soon as you get out of college, right? Um, you're social justice warriors. And that's a, that's encouraging, right? Why? Because you know that this world cannot be all that there is. You know that wrongs cannot be left wrong. That they need to be made right. That there is some reason, whether I know exactly why or why not, that it needs to be made right. You may not agree with Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem, but you get it. Your generation gets it. You may not believe individually necessarily that you will save the world, but you at least believe that you are playing some part when you go on mission trips or when you go on service trips. Because in your heart of hearts, you know whether you've admitted admitted it or not, that this life cannot be all that there is. And so, there is something worth fighting for. There is something worth striving towards making things better. I want you to think about it. Think about, what if this is all that there is? Think about it. If this is all that there is, this isn't just a cosmic problem. It's a personal one. It's an individual one for every single person in this room. Your parents get divorced. You've been dealing with that. If this world is all that there is, it's tragic, yeah, but it just kind of is what it is. Sorry. You can try harder and make your marriage work, but again, your marriage just kind of is what it is. If this world is all that there is. Social justice, right? Racism awareness, police brutality awareness, LGBT community, um, helping them believe that there actually are Christians out there that believe they are real persons. Poverty, sex trafficking, you name it. If this world is all that there is, it just kind of is what it is. I mean, if it makes you feel good to make those things better, go for it. But it just kind of is what it is. Some of you carry in your minds, in your hearts, in your bodies violations that many of us can't imagine. And sure, it's a tragedy 
But you know, like that hole that that's burned in the core of your being, if this world is all there is, it just kind of is what it is. Hope you make the best of it. It's just ice cold tragedy, right? But here's the thing. This is why Revelation 5 might be my favorite chapter in the Bible. Because none of that, any of it, just is what it is. And you know it. You do. Why do you know it? Let's move on here. Verse 5. Look at, uh, let's look at what is the solution then? What is the solution? If this world is not... If, we, if we're called on not to weep, if this world isn't just what it is, what is it? What's the solution? We'll look at verse 5. Verse 5 kind of breaks in like this aha moment of a good story or a good movie, right? Weep no more. There is one. There is one who is worthy. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the root of David and he has conquered. Those two titles, Old Testament titles of Messiah, Hebrew word for anointed one, where we get the word Messiah, right? Every time those titles are used of this coming anointed one, it's in the context of one who would come, who would conquer both his and our enemies, right? You see what the angel is saying is justice is coming. He's here. Justice is coming. But here's the thing. Justice is coming. That is the cry of heaven at this moment. Justice is coming. Have no fear. But if justice is coming, if every wrong will be made right, if everyone who has done wrong will pay the consequences of those wrongs, there's a tension. Who can stand? That's the tension. If there is one coming that is going to right every single wrong, who can stand? Right? It's what Beaver says to the Pevensey children in Narnia as they're trying to learn who this Aslan is, right? And they find out that he's a lion and they're told if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they are just silly. Why? Because he's a lion. You like eat your face off, right? I want a pet lion in heaven. We'll get to that later in the semester. Uh, just joking. Tension breaker. Anyway, how will he right wrong? But how will I be safe in the midst of that? That's the tension. Well, here's the thing. There are two great truths, two great rights that are glaringly wrong in the world. What are they? Well, the first one is this. The first great right truth that stands forever is that God's law, His holiness, is perfect and unbreakable. But if you know anything about history and now, people are breaking it all the time. And what does it bring into the world? Sin and death and decay and destruction. Ezekiel 18, again, one of those prophetic books that that the book of Revelation follows closely. In Ezekiel 18.4, we read that the soul that sins is the soul that dies. It's one of those verses you read and you're like, man, my Bible is so encouraging today. The soul that sins... Is the soul that dies. The point being, the slightest injustice on our part demands an infinite payment. And the only thing that can pay an infinite payment is our very eternal souls. 
And so we get all excited about the lion. Man, he is going to get them, right? But wait a minute. (laughs) What about me? We have to come to terms, grip, come to terms with the fact that if he is coming for anyone, it's us. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How will we escape it? One of my favorite illustrations, a guy named G.K. Chesterton was an author and apologist and writer and satirist in uh, England in the early 1900s. Uh, and he was one time, I can't remember, it was like Time Magazine, one of those big magazines, wrote him. They were having this thing where they were having famous authors write in and write an essay um, on what's wrong with the world. And this is how G.K. Chesterton uh, responded to the editors of that magazine asking him, him to write an essay. This is what it said. Dear sirs, concerning your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. I love that illustration. Why? Because at some point, we have to come to grips with the fact that all the death and dysfunction and decay of this world, we are prime contributors to it. In mind, in heart, in soul. Another, maybe a little bit more personal illustration, at least for me. You want to, maybe, I don't know if you think about being a parent one day, but you want to know the hardest thing about parenting. The hardest thing about parenting is admitting and realizing that you are part of the biggest problem in your children's lives. Why? There is nothing like seeing pure ugliness come out of your child and realizing they would have no idea how to have expressed that if you weren't their parent. At some point, we have to acknowledge that we contribute to what makes the world broken. At some point, we have to look at life and say, my world is broken because I'm in the center of it. I have to admit at some point that there are multitudes of people who carry pain and scars in their lives because they've had relationship with me. This world is broken because of me. And if the lion is coming to conquer sin and destruction, I am in trouble. But there's a second one, right? There's a second right that is wrong. And it sounds mutually exclusive, but it's this. That God loves and rules over all his creation. Everything that he's made. He rules over it and he loves it. In that same chapter in Ezekiel 18, um, God says this. That he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's saying he loves the things that he has made. One of the most interesting verses in in the book of Jonah. Jonah is the prophet that he sent to preach to Nineveh to tell them to repent, right? Jonah doesn't want to go. And he tells God, I don't want to go because I don't want them to repent. Because I know if they repent, you'll have mercy on them. Jonah's very honest. And at the end of the book, it's like the, it's like the weirdest ending of any of the books of the Bible. God just asked Jonah, do you really want me to destroy 120,000 people and many cattle? And the book ends. <laughs> he takes no pleasure in the destruction of anything that he has made. So in other words, whereas God's law His holiness is at the center of the universe. So also there is his love and they are not mutually exclusive and you cannot have one without the other. 
to have the law to the exclusion of love, then all we're going to do is die. To have His love to the exclusion of His law, then there is no such thing as righteousness. There is no such thing as justice. There is no such thing that wrongs being made right. Horatius Bonner, I know you love that name, quotes there in your handout. I love this quote though. Law and love must be reconciled. The one cannot give way to the other, but must stand, else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. (laughs) Dude had a cosmic vision, didn't he? Is that the right page? That was really weird. Sorry. Okay. I'm on the right page. So what's the solution? Look at verse 6. I love this. I love this. He hears about a lion. He turns around to look and he sees a lamb. He hears about a lion, but he turns and he sees a lamb. But it's not just any lamb. It's one who stands as though he has been slain. He's got horns and we're kind of like, that's weird. What do I do with that? But again, images. But what kind of images? Bible images, horns and visions throughout the Bible always symbolize kings or authority. So this lamb has seven horns, so he's got a lot of power. He's the perfect king. So wait a minute. You get what's happening? The lion is the lamb. The lamb is the lion. And the point is this, we need both. We need both of them. The lion is comforting because we need evil destroyed, wrongs made right, broken things made whole. The slain lamb is comforting because if you know that you are part of the problem, you know that that's the death you deserve. We need both. We need both. And the point is, Jesus... Is both. He's both. As the lion, he upholds God's perfect law perfectly. He is the perfect righteous one, and he's the only one that's ever lived. And as the lot, as the lamb, look at verse nine. He's worthy. Why? He's worthy because he was slain. He's worthy because He was killed. He's worthy because He was slaughtered. He's worthy because people killed Him when we should have been the ones that died on that place. He died the death that His people deserved. So all the violence, all the injustice, all the lying, all the cheating, all the abuse, all the hatred that we contribute to this world, He took on Himself in His body and He was put to death for it. Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because He has conquered. He lived a perfect life and then He laid down that life that He might take it up again but also that He might give it to us. Because the ultimate, get it, the ultimate plan of God was to seek and save lost sinners. And this was the only way. The only way to do it was not to come and judge the world, but to come and take the judgment on Himself. Friends, hear it. If you want to write down a quote, here it is. Get your pens ready. 
The gospel is not just that Christ died for you. It's that He lived for you. It's also that He lived for you. This is the solution to the cosmic crisis. But again, get it. This is the solution to your individual crises as well. Some of you carry, again, in your mind, in your bodies, in your hearts, unspeakable tragedy. Or even abuse. And here's what you need to know. You need to know that there's a lion. And he is worthy. And he is conquered. And hear this. He is angry. He is angry. He is angry. At every wrong that you have ever been a victim of. And he will not stop until he tears it apart. And so you can know that it's not up to you to put the pieces back together because you can't. But at the same time, you got to know he's a lamb. And when you know that, you know that when you cry to him, he knows exactly how it feels. Exactly. Some of you cannot escape this neon flashing sign that hangs over your entire existence. Failure. Everything you do, you feel, falls apart and disappoints people. You need to see the lion who has done everything perfectly for you. And you need to see the lamb who by His death, because He's covered you with His blood, has removed every single ounce of shame from you and your identity. Your identity can never again be defined by what you have done. It can't be. Y'all, we could just end there. This is the story. This is the drama. This is the drama of all history. It is cosmic in its implications. But it is personal in that it has your name written all over it. This was God's will for your life. The greatest mystery of all that not one person that has ever existed could have figured out on their own. That the lion conquered how? By being slaughtered as a lamb. Who makes that up? Try me. Who makes that up? The solution. Quickly, and let's end with this. What's the result? What's the result? Well, in one word, you look at verses 9 through 14, the result is a new song. Christians sing because God has written a new song on our hearts. Two things I want to hone in on. First, look at verse 9. This is, you can't come to this passage in verse 9 and not mention this. You cannot, you cannot come to Revelation 5 verse 9 and not bring this up. 
that Jesus has ransomed a people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. Because of Jesus and what He's done and what He's doing and what will be in heaven with God for eternity, there will be a people, a community, and the thought of us versus them will come nowhere close to their mindset. In other words, what I'm saying is there is no such thing as racism anywhere in heaven for eternity. And again, I don't think you can come here and not say this, that there is a sad truth that we have to own up to. That our churches, the churches we've grown up in and the churches we love, do not look like heaven. And that is a problem And the sadder truth is that we have ignored this glaring fact decade after decade, generation after generation. And the main problem that perpetuates it is that the majority will not stop ever at all just to say, you know what, I'm sorry. Not your parents, not your grandparents, not their parents, and not their parents before them have done it. When are we going to do it? You know, I do not know why my Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church that I grew up in forbid black people from entering its building. And you know what? You're right. I wasn't there and I didn't do it. But it kills me. And I'm sorry. And I don't know what else to do about it. You cannot come to Revelation 5, verse 9, and not think about that at some level. The final thing I want you to see is so beautiful. Verse 10. He has made them, because He has covered them in His blood, He has made them a kingdom of priests. Now get this. Priests in the Old Testament were the ones who took the sacrifices of the people and then went into the temple to offer those sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. In other words, symbolically, the priest would take the pains and the sufferings and the sins of the people. They would take those and they would take them to God. And then they would intercede and they would say, have mercy. And now, this is the picture. Because you, if you are a Christian, because you are covered by the blood of the Lamb, you are now called to bring the hurts and the pains and the sufferings of the people around you to God. But here's the thing. There's only one way you can do that. You have to go to the pain and to the suffering and to the sins first. It shouldn't be hard because it's all around you. Every relationship, every awkward smile, every nervous glance, it's all around you. Look again though, verse 10. He says they will reign where? On earth. 
This book is not about what we're going to do in two or three or four hundred years when Jesus comes back again. It's about what are you going to do right now. And what this says right now is that because or if you're covered by the blood of the land, you will reign. Where? Here. But you won't reign as a lion. (laughs) You'll reign like a slaughtered lamb as you enter into the pain and the suffering and the sin and the brokenness of the people around you. Your calling is not to sit tight. Jesus will make it all better. You just wait. That's not our calling. The Bible doesn't say anything close to that ever. No, your calling is to walk into the brokenness, walk into the pain, walk into the sin of other people and bear it with them. Why? Because that is how we are told how this kingdom grows. That is how this kingdom looks. That, why? Because that's what the king did. It's exactly what he did. Look, people will experience Jesus in the kingdom of God through you, not when you show them how solid your theology is, but when you enter into their lives and when you just sit and listen and learn and maybe cry and hopefully laugh. Your friends will experience Jesus when you walk into their lives like the slain lamb walked into yours. He told you the truth because you needed to hear it, that you deserve to die the death that he did. And so your friends perhaps need to hear the truth that you're worried about them and you think what they're doing is bringing harm to themselves and others. And you might need to do that knowing the shame and rejection and mockery you might receive because of it. Your friends will experience Jesus when you tell them, you know what? I was wrong. And you may have been wrong too, but it doesn't matter because I was wrong. And we hear that and we're like, that would be great, right? And I've heard that before and I believe it, but I really don't know how I can do any of that. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible, Hosea chapter 11. If you don't know anything about the book of Hosea, Hosea was a prophet that God called to be a prophet. And he said, Hosea, this is what your prophetic ministry will be. You're going to go marry a prostitute and you're going to love her and you're going to keep her despite her whoring. And it is going to be a picture for my people what it's like for me to love them. Quiet time there for you. Listen to this at the end of Hosea, Hosea 11, 8 through 10. After he start, he's talking about the judgment that his people deserve, listen to what he then says. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord and get it. He will roar like a lion. And when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. Raise your hand if you will run towards the roaring of a lion. 
But God says in that day when he roars, that's exactly what his children will do. The Gospels tell us, this is what the New Testament tells us. Jesus came and he roared. He came, he went to a cross, he bore the sins of the world in his body, and he bore the wrath of his Father. And John says on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. My friend and campus minister, Les Newsom, he says it like this. When God roared in Jesus, he married a whore and he began her eventual healing. There's so much more to it, but I just want to ask, that's a great story. At least, wouldn't it be? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need a lion. There's so much wrong. How many men are we going to watch get shot? How many cities are we going to see burn? How many mothers are we going to see crying? How many relationships are we going to see broken? We need a lion. But Father, we need a lamb. Because all that stuff that we see on TV, we know that it's going on in our own hearts and we don't know what to do with it. Show us Jesus. We pray in His name. Amen.